Hello and welcome to DC Screens, the podcast where we watch movies, talk movies, and argue movies with a particular focus on film culture in and around DC. I'm Josh. And I'm Claire. And today for our second episode, we are going to be talking about 1984's Gremlins, directed by Joe Dante, written by Chris Columbus, produced by uh, some dude named Steven Spielberg. Mm. Um, And in the decades between when this film was released and now, this film has become something of a Christmas classic. And it will be showing at AFI Silver on December 19th and December 21st, which is next Monday and next Wednesday. It'll be a double feature. The first one will be showing with Krampus, and the second one will be showing with Trading Places, both at 6.45 p.m. Yeah, so this movie was actually a summer blockbuster, even though it was written and set in Christmas and was intended to be a Christmas film. It came out the same summer as, I believe, Temple of Doom and Ghostbusters, so this was Warner Brothers' like contribution to the summer film market. This was the um, best year of film in the yeah, 80s. This, the 84 seems to be, like, when I was researching for this podcast, by which I mean when I was like reading the Wikipedia article on Gremlins oh, like five minutes ago, a lot of really great and a lot of definitive 80s pop culture comes out in 1984, which mm-hmm. makes sense because a lot of stuff in the early 80s still feels very 70s, but this feels very much like an 80s movie. Like everything we associate with the 80s feels this way. Yeah, to piggyback off of that, I mean, we, we see Phoebe Cates and Judge Reinhold reunite in this movie, which two years earlier they were in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which was just 1982, but I agree that feels somewhat like a 70s carryover if we're looking at cinema. It just has a lot of 70s characteristics, I think. Yeah, the kind of especially like you see like the Sean Penn, like mm-hmm. Stoner Spicoli. character. Yeah, yeah it's Jess still Spicoli. very much like a, like a late 70s kind of like beach bump party dude. I agree. It hasn't totally morphed into like the 80s archetypes that we expect from like a John Hughes movie. Or a John this, Carpenter movie. Yeah, whereas this feels like it is the love child of John Hughes and John Carpenter. It is, yeah, it really we, is. We yeah. just came up with that, that right now. We are so good. <laughs> So what are the what are the three rules of Mowgli slash Gremlins, and do they make any sense? They do make sense, um, and no, they're very they're... simple. They're very simple. Number one, keep them out of the light, and the sunlight will kill them. Number two, do not get them wet, and number three, never feed them after midnight. No matter what they do, they can kick and scream. Do not feed them after midnight. Very important. All right. So we had some questions about these rules. First of all, snow. Oh right. How. The gremlins are later walking around the town in the snow. That gets them wet, but that doesn't cause them to multiply. Not a huge deal, but, you know. I'm going to be honest. I never noticed that until you pointed it out earlier, and it totally ruined the movie for me. <laughs> no, it didn't. It's fine. So keep them out of the sunlight. It's kind of a, it's like a standard monster trope, which, by the way, mm-hmm. Mowgli is just the Cantonese. Mowgli. Mowgli. Mowgli is just the Cantonese word for monster. Is it really? No, it's not. How would I make that up for my own imagination? Of course, I found it on the Wikipedia page okay. earlier. Don't get them wet. And then the third rule, never feed them after midnight. Just whatever. So, if, look, if I'm in Detroit mm-hmm. and then I get on a flight and I'm in Chicago. They, they talk can, about that. Go from- yeah, they talk about that in Gremlins, too. They, they make a kind of joke about, oh, what about time zones? And la, 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 And what if, what if you have this? And, and that's a nice segue into Gremlins, too, which I consider to be superior to Gremlins. That is easily. ridiculous. I am going to have to politely disagree. That was not I a think polite it's so disagreement that you just hokey. made. 
Kremlin's too it's, is, it has is the cheese factor. No, it's it not has, cheesy. It's deliberately no, it cartoonish. That's mm. why I mean we had the references and yeah. the cameo by Chuck Jones with in Daffy Gremlins Duff. One. Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, yeah, but like in Gremlins Two, it's more overt. But there's cartoonishness in Gremlins Two. We had the Chuck Jones cameo in mm-hmm. the bar. He plays Mr. Jones, and there's uh, references to kind of those over the top cartoon characters that Chuck Jones and early Warner Brothers cartoons are famous for, and they just take that to the next level in Gremlins Two, and it's a very on point overt satire of most of the things that gremlins one is satirizing but they just take it up to 11 and they yeah, make it and it's too much no it's not too much it too is, much with is the hulk better hogan? no it's not it's you it's have the funny. hulk hogan trying to like the whole meta thing and you have i mean the cheese factor it, it honestly seemed it reminded me of hell comes to Frogtown in in parts where you have that the gremlins no is, it is no, it, it's no. totally accurate you have you have the the gremlin with the lipstick dressed in the thing. It looked exactly like one of the frogs in Hell Come to Frogtown. Well, Hell the special effects in neither of these films. I mean, I'm not talking about the special effects. I'm talking about just how corny it was. The kind of corniness of Hell Comes to Frogtown of all the weird comparisons you could have made, <laughs> as opposed to Gremlins Two. That's just that's a very like that. No, there's there's totally two totally different senses of humor going on. Again, Gremlins Two is still satirical but it's also cartoonish the the skewering of american consumer culture skewing of oh, skewer. skewering as in as one would with meat of american consumer culture in gremlins 2 is just again it's in it's in the first movie they just take it to extremes in gremlins 2 it is over the top but it's deliberately over the top and it's kind of joyously over the top i think what makes it more interesting is that you can't that, see this but i'm shaking my head no she's not she's lying no <laughs> what makes it more interesting is the fact that it is even more self-conscious than Gremlins. The winking in Gremlins One becomes just a a full-blown. A, no, it, you're right. It, it is, but it's too it's much. Also, I feel like in Gremlins because it has the benefit of being in 1990 as opposed to 1984, and it can look back more comprehensively on the phenomenon of sequels it makes fun of itself for being a sequel in a way that's really interesting too gremlins 2 is not a perfect movie there are moments that don't work but gremlins 2 is a much more ambitious and interesting movie than gremlins i disagree i think the the, i think the plot is not as tight i think it it does even the references aren't the plot to gremlins 1 is tight it's It's much tighter it's much tighter and it's much more successful and you have in gremlins 2 you have that one dentist scene where you know the gremlin is trying to drill into he's about to drill into billy's teeth and he says is it safe which i don't know how many people will get that reference how many people have seen marathon man which i love marathon man's a great movie it's an excellent movie but i just think it's that's such what a makes cheesy it that makes it funnier even in gremlins 2 i don't think is so. that it's such a weird deep cut like the reference i mean i feel like oh, that's still like kind of a reference that you've seen in a lot of stuff but you know there's there's some there's some references in gremlins that are a little bit i mean i think that Without the benefit of home video and without the benefit of seeing you know film streaming on online, mm-hmm. like a lot of the pop culture references in Gremlins would have been lost on the original audience in 1984. I don't know if people really remembered. Certainly, it's a wonderful life, but Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Like, I mean, it's not like to they had seen the lady, these movies right. recently, right? Right. Um, and also, we didn't mention before uh, Forbidden Planet, the robot in uh, the invention convention. Mis- yeah, yeah, the invention convention. <laughs> uh, Randall Pelcher attends. The robot is the robot from Forbidden Planet. But but going back to what you're saying about the references, I, I do I will give you credit on one thing. I do think that Gremlins Two does one thing very successfully, which is make fun of itself in one aspect. So when we revisit that morbid kind of Christmas story that uh, Kate tells, there's this one part where she starts to talk about. 
someone mentions Abraham Lincoln and she says, don't get me started on Lincoln's birthday when I was six or seven years old. And, and Billy cuts her off and he's like, I don't think we have time for this. But she's referencing the part in the first movie where she talks about when they found her father in the chimney dressed as Santa with a presence and he had, he was dead. And this is why she hates Christmas, right? And that's um, how she found out there's no Santa. And that's how she found out there's no Santa. It's, <laughs> exactly. sort, of, it's sort of like Jaws, right? Where... You have all these great set pieces and all these kind of special effects mm -hmm. moments. The most memorable scene in the whole film, Robert, when Robert Shaw gives that speech about surviving the USS Indianapolis, Phoebe Cates, her speech about her dad dying in the chimney, which I think I think I read that Spielberg wanted to cut it out really? of okay. the film because he thought it was, it was too dark. dark. Yeah, but it's hilarious. It's funny now. It's yeah, so, watching no, it, it's really it's, funny. It was deliberately funny. Like, was it funny at the time? Okay. In the movie, it's so funny. I thought it was funny, but I felt bad for laughing at it. No, you should feel good about laughing at it. It's funny. I also it's felt so bad funny. when Mrs. Deagle died, or I, I felt bad for feeling happy when mrs deagle i think mrs died. deagle getting thrown out she's is, a horrible person it's supposed to be funny too she's which again maybe that's a little bit mean spirit mean spirited kind of taking it out on you know old spin i guess she's not a spinster she's a widow but yeah she has the cats and on her yeah she's a cat place. lady yeah, she's, she's an old lady. woman we all know that women who are no longer sexually viable should always be objects of scorn in society and own many cats and own many cats so that that monologue is right. to me that's the highlight of the movie and uh, I think it was, I think it was Chris Columbus actually who insisted that it stay in, or it might have been Columbus and Dante together. But that's the high point. That is the funniest scene in what, again, I think is a dark comedy. And I think it's deliberate. And I think that that punchline, and that's how I found out that there's no Santa. I mean, that's, this movie has a lot of great nostalgia value. It's very entertaining. It's, it can be cute. It can be gory. It's, it's usually, there are a few so places, cute. there are a few places that I think could be tightened up in terms of pacing, but it's still, you're rolling, she's rolling her eyes at me. That is easily the best part is her just speech and just the, um, Billy's not really, he's kind of zoned out. He's yeah, he's just but, doing other stuff like, but, all right, let her do But her Gizmo's thing. reaction shots are great. I know. And Gizmo, it, they did such a good job with Gizmo's face. Whenever Gizmo cries, I want to cry. Whenever he's happy, I'm happy. I don't know what it is about his little face and, and Howie Mandel's voice is just so perfect. Yeah, the puppetry um, work and the puppet design amazing. for Gizmo, I think, is actually a lot more interesting and memorable than the Gremlins, who, at least in this movie, non Gremlins too, but in this movie are kind of all indistinguishable. Besides right. Right. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about Gremlins and why it endures as such a classic and why uh, most people... How can you not love this movie? It's it's so great. And I think one of the things that's so great about this movie is the fact that it pays tribute to so many other movies within uh, the movie itself. I think there are little uh, Easter eggs throughout this that make it so endearing and so kind of smart. You have that little flash dance gremlin in Dory's Tavern that does a little maniac dance. And then you have, um, you know, that little nod to E.T. from Spielberg where uh, you have Stripe hiding behind a little E.T. amongst all of the other stuffed animals in the department store when uh, Billy is trying to find him. All right, so let's count down some of the pop culture references in Gremlins because I think the references both to you know classic films um, but also references to what in 1984 would have been contemporary pop culture are really essential to understanding why Gremlins was so popular when it was first released, why, why its popularity has endured this long, and also 
maybe some reasons has actually been more influential than maybe it seems. We can start with It's a Wonderful Life, uh, which I think plays a big part in this film. The town itself in Gremlins is called Kingston Falls, much like Bedford Falls in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, the mother is watching the film in her kitchen and says it's a sad movie. Well, that establishing shot on the main street of Kingston Falls uh, emulates a lot of a couple different similar shots in It's a Wonderful Life, uh, where George Bailey is kind of like, uh, there's actually a number of shots where he's kind of walking back and forth on Main Street. And it's very much a kind of quaint, archetypal Main Street USA with kind of mom-and-pop storefronts, although mixed into the mom-and-pop storefronts and bars and um, you know, hardware stores and things like that. Dory's Tavern. Uh, Dory's Tavern, right. There is some very obvious Burger King product placement. Totally You'll never that. be able to unsee it now that I've told you. If you go back <laughs> and go watch back. the credit sequence, the Gremlins... Burger King is, I think, I think I think Burger King and Milk Duds paid for this movie essentially. Um, but we also have some references uh, to the film itself in the sense that the characters are watching It's a Wonderful Life and talking about It's mm -hmm. a Wonderful Life. Yeah, and the same thing with Invasion of the Body Snatchers. They have Invasion of the Body Snatchers playing at one point, and there's a they do several lines from the film. But one of them, uh, one of the characters says, "Miles, where do they come from?" And later on in the movie, this is so great. Kate asks Billy, what are these things? Where do they come from? It's the exact same line because um, it's the same thing, right? These these creatures come in and invade this this life that these people have constructed and then they they morph into pods once they're, you know, the once they multiply and then they become, I don't know, they, they hatch, right? So it's the same kind of idea. Yeah, and when I first saw this rewatch this film before this podcast i immediately thought about the first alien movie you know where the facehuggers yeah. pop out of and i think maybe there's a little bit of maybe it's just the similarity uh, alien was 1979 so it's kind of similar era of practical effects but you're absolutely right we see it's a wonderful life on screen and then there are lots of echoes of it's a wonderful life in the world of the film especially right. mrs deagle is clearly is clearly a potter figure yeah um, Mr. Potter, yeah, she's such a Mr. Scrooge. Mr. Potter, yeah. Um, or, yeah, no, a, a Scrooge. Um, also very much like the Wicked Witch of the West in Wizard oh, of Oz. Oh, I can see which, that, yeah. You know, the whole thing with water, maybe there's some kind of reference there. Although maybe this movie is just so inundated with pop culture references, you start seeing them when they aren't when actually they're not intended. There, right. yeah. And, of course, Invasion of the Body Snatchers... You're right, the scene where the pods hatch in Invasion of the Body Snatchers is very, very similar. And it's directly and deliberately mimicked. And then Barney and Gizmo watch Clark Gable in To Please a Lady. And and I think that's so great because later at the end of the movie, Gizmo rides in on his little toy car to save the day. And he's hearing Clark Gable in his head saying, now that guy needs a certain kind of dame. And I just think it's such a great touch because who doesn't love all of these references? It's great. But also all of the um, the kind of allusions to especially um, 40s and 50s kind of uh, classic movies mm -hmm. uh, in the story of the film itself. Those kinds of things speak to this generation of filmmakers. Spielberg, yes. Lucas, Joe Dante, Chris Columbus would be more or less in that group. Um, these are the directors that went to film school. They didn't learn their trade on the Hollywood backlot. They went to film school. They, they were cinephiles. They read film publications. They were part of film clubs. Like They immersed themselves in film culture and this idea that pop culture should be... In communication with these other films, yeah. Yeah, there should be in dialogue with um, contemporary and contemporary pop culture and pop culture from a generation ago. Some audiences today might find the little kind of self-referential moments in this film a little bit annoying. 
simply because we're so used to them at this point. For instance, the you already pointed out the plush E.T. Um, in the uh, one of the scenes later in the film where meeting up the confrontation between Billy and Stripe. There's a reference also to Indiana Jones, the billboard early in the film, the one that's an advertisement for the Oh, radio, that's right, the, the Rock and Ricky. Right, right, right yeah. Rock and Ricky. Yeah, that, I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, and this call. is not an intentional That was reference. the same year, though. That was released the same year. The Raiders was, of the Lost Ark was the same year as Gremlins, though. No, that's Temple of Doom was 1940. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Um, so again, right. even though this was coming out the same summer as Temple of Doom, the Indiana Jones joke That's is already great. there with just one film. Well, it's great at the time. I don't know if the legacy of, of that kind of you know deep layering of reference upon reference upon reference, I think it's gotten a little bit old now today in 2016. But I think No, I think it was done really well. I think it was done really well and it was really balanced in this movie. Okay. This movie is of a piece with lots of other 80s films that kind of idealize small town America. Mm-hmm. And I'm not exactly sure what accounts for that. Maybe it's the upbringing of some of these filmmakers. But it looks a lot like Hill Valley and Back to the Future. And if you look carefully, especially there are scenes where you can look down the street and see the movie theater at the end of the street. It is that street Mm. from Back to the Future. It's the same backlot. It's the same set. It's Mm -hmm. not a deliberate reference. They're just using the same set. Mm -hmm. Um, which uh, which at the end looks like a little Christmas card almost the way it's the way yeah it's there's set some up. interesting um, and again almost deliberately retro kind of matte paintings right. at the beginning and of this movie that kind of set up yeah it is it is a kind of uh, almost deliberately artificial looking kind of Christmas card mm-hmm. landscape with all of these obsessive pop culture references in this film it's interesting to reflect today on how again standard these this kind of uh, nostalgia has become in a lot of contemporary, well, contemporary to us pop culture. And I think when we talk about, you know, all of these kind of retro and throwback films that have come out, um, whether you have kind of 80s throwback, throwback action movies like Drive and The Guest, or whether you have something that's so deliberately, we have something that revels in nostalgia very self-consciously in a way that people have kind of begun to push back against, like the great Netflix series Stranger Things. Mm. It's easy to forget when we're looking at that kind of pop culture nostalgia, that the pop culture that we are, the 80s pop culture that we are nostalgic for today was itself deeply nostalgic for an earlier generation of pop culture. When you see references in Stranger Things to E.T., Firestarter, it makes it easy to forget that the 1980s were just as inundated with nostalgia for especially the 40s and 50s, it seems like. Yeah. That being said... Um, there are certain things in this film that probably wouldn't fly today. Um, and, and every time we get our dose of nostalgia, we always remember that, hey, stuff was way more racist in the 80s than it is now. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I mean, just even and in the homophobic. beginning. Yeah, but mostly xenophobic, I think, in this movie is, yeah. is where most of the focus is. And especially starting out with that opening scene in Chinatown where you have the, the Chinese man smoking opium in his shop, I guess. And and uh, Randall mean, makes that joke about dragon breath. And it's immediately kind of like there's a side eye from the Chinese man. Like, really? Did you just say that? Um, but it kind of it transpires into something else with the character of Fetterman where, where you have this all-encompassing paranoia. Uh, from just anything that's foreign coming into this this world. The Volkswagen, and then the Japanese-made electronics, so mm-hmm. yeah. Japanese and German products right. from this guy who is either a World War II veteran or wants to think of himself as a World War II veteran, 
Okay, yeah, you have, uh, there's this one interesting part where the pods are opening and Gizmo, who is not like the other gremlins, right? He's, he's very much apart from these other evil, not furry gremlins once they hatch. And he is hiding inside a Honda helmet, which I think is an interesting touch. And, and you have the character of Futterman constantly saying, you know, foreigns plant gremlins in their machinery and their watches and their stereos. He's very suspicious of all of these foreign uh, parts that, that come in and all of these different types of machines that are being used. I think there are a couple different ways to interpret the xenophobia or the element of xenophobia in this movie. It's kind of, there's one way to do it. It's kind of uncharitable, critical, looking at the film itself and the filmmakers as kind of advancing and perpetuating xenophobic stereotypes. And then maybe there's another way to read it where Gizmo and the Gremlins both represent some kind of foreign, not intrusion, but some kind of foreign entry into American culture. Gizmo adapts the most wholesome and heroic aspects of American culture, and the gremlins adapt the most crass and consumerist and vulgar aspects of American culture. Maybe that's a way to look at it. Yeah, I think that's great um, because Gizmo is is not one of them, right? He's special, he's different, and he's very Americanized. In the second one, we see him watching Rambo, and he puts the little headband on his head and becomes very heroic and kind of embodies this this hero archetype, right, through the character of, of Sylvester Stallone. Um, but then the first one, you're right, uh, we see him as kind of holding the flag in the police station, and the cops say something like, oh, he's waving the flag and everything. But I think your reading is interesting because the other could also be just any type of alien, right? And, and you mentioned alien early, Ridley Scott's uh, alien earlier. And we have those TV reports at the end of The Little Green Men. We have the Orson Welles kind of War of the Worlds reference, right? Uh, on, the, on the radio by Rock and Ricky. So this could just be any type of... They can just be an alien aspect that's become intrusive to this small town culture. And it doesn't have to be something as racist or xenophobic as maybe we're trying to read it right now. You could write a freshman, you know, like a, like a, like a, like a cinema 101 paper mm -hmm. in your sleep about how the stereotypes of Chinese people and Chinese Americans are kind of retrograde, and especially in the first act of this movie. It wouldn't be anything that we haven't all heard and read before. And honestly, compared to a lot of contemporary to 1984 pop culture, the treatment of Chinatown and the kind of mysterious, exotic, uh, older Chinese man that you know comes back for the Mowgli at the end is actually pretty mild and pretty sympathetic. Like it's not compared to like Big Trouble in Little China. Or yeah, something. Like, well, Big Big Trouble Little Big Trouble in Little China is like deliberately playing right, right. stereotypes, right? It's Where this movie is just kind it's of like... indulging stereotypes, but in a way that. At a time when anti-Asian xenophobia was really high because of the legacy of Vietnam and because of the seeming um, eclipse of a lot of American technology manufacturing by Japanese technology manufacturing, this is pretty mild compared to, say, Long Duk Dong. Sixteen Candles. Yeah, which is, you know, like the equivalent of Step and Fetch It or something like that. Like mm -hmm. That's an egregiously racist stereotype. Right. This just kind of indulges... Um, you know, a kind of a, a less toxic stereotype of the mysterious East and the mysterious um, kind of exotic culture of the Orient. 
which is still there's a there's, there's that's that's deep in Western culture, right? Like from the colonial era, that's just something that's very hard to shake. Right, and whenever something you know mildly or you know somewhat overtly racist is said by the character of, of Randall Peltzer, I think he says something like, "Oh, is that Confucius or Bruce Lee?" Um, and in the very beginning of the movie, whenever the Asian man says, "I don't even remember what he says," but it's it's kind of shown as, "Oh, well, this is not how everybody thinks. This is how Randall thinks." Yeah, like Randall Peltzer is kind of seen as like a. You know, it's kind of a archetypal small town middle class guy who is a little bit provincial, a little bit bumbling, and then you have the other most xenophobic character in the film, who is uh, Mr. Futterman, Futterman, who is clearly just a crazy drunk and is kind of like the you know kind of a yokel. Um, so it's not necessarily that he's Futterman is like Mr. Roper was to homophobia. It's like he is. I feel like he would be the the modern Mr. Roper, but instead of being homophobic, he's xenophobic. Who's Mr. Roper? Oh my god, Three's Company. What's Three's Company? So... Yeah, that's funny, see? I think that the film itself is not so much making up these stereotypes out of whole cloth or indulging them for reasons that are, you know, maliciously racist or anything like that. I think that's that would be a wild, wild overstatement. I think it's pretty benign. Mm-hmm. And part of it just is the film's interest in appealing to earlier generations of pop culture part of the reason that they're borrowing this idea of a mysterious creature coming out of the mysterious east is for the same reason that they're borrowing pod people like it's just part of pulp american and pulp western culture is you know going all the way back to fu manchu or something like that like that's just in the cultural bloodstream and it's a lot less malignant here than it is in lots of other pop culture not that that makes it okay but the rude awakening that we often have when we go back and watch films that we are nostalgic for from the 80s now as adults in the 21st century is not as sharp here as it is in, God, any, num- any number of other films. Well, in this and, film. and even the depiction of Americans. I mean, you're right when you say that the gremlins kind of capture the, the worst and adopt the worst parts of American life, which are, you know, candy, commercialism, consumerism. They're all about the milk duds and they have the, the Snickers bar. Mr. Hansen, the science teacher, lures one of the gremlins with a Snickers bar and then he bites off his hand and kills him. Um, and so just all of these types of things that uh, are very indulgent. I think Americans are just as, as much as poked fun of as much in, as any other culture in this movie. Yeah, and it's a, it's a cartoonish movie in some respects. Mm-hmm. All the characters in this film, to some extent, are stereotypes, which, again, doesn't necessarily make it totally forgivable, but it does um, make it more understandable. So part of the, the part of the way that this movie is set up is with voiceover narration, and it doesn't actually come from the main human character, which is Billy. It comes from his dad. Right, Randall Peltzer, and he begins by selling us i mean he is a salesman salesman and he's selling us this story and he says i've got a story you haven't heard anything like this story and he starts telling us about uh the gremlins and how they came to be but we want to think about how much we want to buy into this story and what i guess the meaning and and what is the takeaway from the story that randall peltzer is telling us because we see him clearly at fault at the end when the Chinese man comes back and he says, you do with Mogwai what your society has done with all of nature's gifts, which is to commodify it or, or you know, exploit it or, or want to do certain things with it. The dad says, Randall says right away, he's like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. You know, he didn't know. It, he's just not ready for it. That character of Randall Peltzer is kind of part of what maybe makes this movie memorable. It's not 
I mean, every character has some kind of strange quirk that embeds or endears him or her to the audience. The weird gadgets that we see throughout the film, which, you know, looking back, I was expecting them to be a significant plot device. Like, they would come back towards the end and, like, the gadgets would help defeat the gremlins. But they don't. It's really but, just part of the backstory. No, I think it is a significant plot device. I think the fact that he makes these inventions like the juicer and the egg cracker, all of these make a mess in the kitchen. And I think he starts out very well-intentioned. And like Billy says, these these things start out and they, they for a couple, or the mother says, a couple weeks they work. They work for a couple of weeks and then and then they stop working. And this is like everything that, that Randall does. I mean, he brings in uh, uh, Gizmo and he's fine, you know, for a while until he starts to multiply. And Bully says later, well, they don't start off vicious. They get vicious later. And I think that's the whole point. This is Randall is introducing all of these elements into his family life, and even though he means well, he doesn't understand the complications and the repercussions that stem from all of these introductions and all these gadgets. And Gizmo, he names Gizmo, Gizmo. I mean, he is an inventor, and this this gift that he's bestowing upon his son winds up turning against him and the rest of the town, and Gizmo winds up having to fight his offspring, essentially. Hmm, that's interesting. So you really do see it as like a, like a satire of American consumer culture. I do, yeah, especially with Randall. Yes. Interesting. And he starts um, off, he says, I have fantastic ideas for a fantastic world. I make the illogical logical. No, you don't. You just make things and you try really hard, but they make a mess. We probably should point out that uh, Billy's dad, Randall Peltzer, is played by the great folk singer turned sometime character actor, Hoyt Axton. All right, so on that note, please go see this alternative Christmas classic at the AFI Silver on December 19th or December 21st. Uh, The 19th, you can see it with Krampus, a film I've never seen, or you can see it on the 21st with Trading Places, the great, great movie. Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Eddie Murphy, Murphy. Jamie Lee Curtis. I forgot she was in that. Yeah, Yeah. she's topless in that movie. She's topless in another what movie was she topless in besides Strange Places? Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm thinking it. She was topless in, She wasn't topless in True Lies. You're right. She just did a dance. She did a striptease. Yeah, but yeah. she didn't take off her top. No, she didn't. Yeah, it was right. a PG-13 movie. You're right. That was when you could have bloody action movies and have them still it be It wasn't PG-13. that bloody. It was just a lot of explosions. It was very violent and very racist. I don't remember it being Arabs. very violent at all, but okay. Next time, we are going to be <gasps> continuing yes. in the holiday spirit, and we are going to be talking about our favorite Christmas films. Yes. My tentative choice at this point, although I think we could be a little bit wide-ranging, is Christmas in Connecticut. Which I have Stanwyck. never seen. Um, and uh, Claire's going to watch it between now and then, hopefully. I and am. her choice is... Black Christmas, of course. Black Christmas. You heard it here. Slasher film. Gremlins. Love it. Black Christmas. And Christmas in Connecticut. Maybe. No one is taking the Christ out of Christmas more ruthlessly and violently than Claire Alvarez. <laughs> it's a great movie. It's a great movie, and it's one of those movies, the first movies where the call is coming from inside the house, which I will talk about later, but I love that. I love mm. that fucking movie. My movie is a, a wholesome classic Yours, yours is very wholesome. Yours I mean, as wholesome as any movie with Barbara, Barbara Stanwyck Stan- can be. <laughs> Although, we, I mean, we'll probably talk about some other movies, too. So, uh, until next time, I'm Josh. And I'm Claire. And this has been DC Screens. We'll see you back here next week. Bye.
for our second episode, we are going to be talking about 1984's, now somewhat considered a Christmas classic, Gremlins. With much malgai comes much responsibility. The <laughs> 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 worst joke. That's, that's terrible. Actually, that's the second or the third worst joke. I don't know. Let's edit that. Let's look. Okay. <laughs> <Just, laughs> 